Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Today marks 75 years since D-Day. That's, of course, the Allied invasion of northern France during World War II. It was a key turning point in the war at a time when Hitler was still in control of most of Europe. Joining me by phone from Normandy is John McManus. He's a professor of history at Missouri S&T in Rolla, Missouri, and among other books, the author of The Dead and Those About to Die, D-Day, The Big Red One at Omaha Beach. John McManus, uh, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Good to be with you. So, t- so tell me where you are right now and, and what, what brought, brought, brought you overseas. Well, right now I am in uh, Cherbourg. I'm aboard a uh, cruise ship with the National World War II Museum. Uh, they've put together a, a 75th anniversary tour for the Normandy invasion. So what we've been doing, we've been sailing up and down the, the French coast uh, the last eight days or so. And um, so we've had, you know, excursions to the various battlefields in the course of the last week. And um, so <clears throat> we uh, we are docked in Cherbourg today, and we'll head to the uh, the Normandy American Cemetery for the uh, the, the uh, binational ceremonies commemorating the invasion. So that will be a ceremony right right over the beach commemorating the 75th anniversary. Correct. Yeah, the cemetery is located on the bluffs overlooking. Uh, what was really one of the, the bloodiest um, beaches for, that the Allies had in Normandy. It was a, it's a sector of Omaha Beach called Easy Red. And um, so, yeah, the cemetery has been placed there, and there are 9,388 Americans um, buried in that cemetery. And so you can imagine it's a, it's a very moving and poignant place. And you've walked to the beach at Normandy in the past, right? Oh, most definitely, quite a bit, yeah. Because I've, I've done um, three books that have a, a Normandy theme. I did a series called The Americans at D-Day and The Americans at Normandy. And then, as you had mentioned, my most recent one um, was, a, was a book about the 1st Infantry Division at Omaha Beach. So in the course of researching those books, uh, I've spent a lot of time here, actually, and, and uh, you know, sort of going through the battlefields and getting a sense of what the terrain is like and also, also a sense, I, I suppose, about how the battle has reverberated here all these decades later, and boy, it really does. Oh, so interesting. Well, as a military historian, I imagine you spend a lot of time working with documents, maybe in and out of libraries. Um, what does it do for you to actually be there and be able to look around at the train and get a sense of it? Yeah, I mean, you're right, because a lot of the, the great source material is, you know, ar- archival documentary kind of material. Um, to, to be here sort of immersed in this culture, and uh, to, to get a look at the terrain, um, to get to walk in the footsteps of, uh, of the soldiers, um, to see how the, the local towns or the or you know beaches uh, have been affected and what's left over from the war, such as like you know German bunkers and and barbed wire, you know things like that, um, really does give you a nice flavor for this. I, I think it kind of rounds out the the historical material and also. You know, the, the many, um, you know, discussions and interviews I've done with veterans over the years, it's just it's nice to be able to, to have that, that base point where I've been to these places, too. So there are things like German bunkers and barbed wire that have been left in place? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, you'll see that all over Normandy. And, and so, you know, for instance, at Omaha Beach, um, you know, some of the, the strongest of the German defenses were bunkers overlooking key exits from the beach. And by and large, most of those bunkers are still there. 
Um, so they're, they're really not all that different than they would have looked on D-Day, though the beach itself is different because, you know, there's a parking lot down where some of the landings took place that wasn't there on D-Day. There's the foliage is heavier and whatever, but still, you know, you're, you're seeing the landscape permanently altered. You'll see like at Omaha beach, for instance, um, which is a kind of a vacation area for many French today, you'll see a nice vacation cottage and then you know, right next to it is, a, is an old bunker, you know, an old pillbox, something like that. Um, so it's, it's sort of like the, the modern with the old mixed together. Is it a tourist location for World War II buffs? Um, it's, you know, it's a tourist location for many French. Uh, many Parisians in particular like to vacation on the, the Normandy coast or just go, to, go for the weekends in the summertime. It's a, it's a really nice place to be. and It's a, it's a wonderful wonderful lifestyle here and culture uh, but also you know for americans to, to come here is always a, a you know a pretty nice experience and you, you can really immerse yourself in the history and of course i mean untold thousands upon thousands of american veterans have come back here to retrace their footsteps sure. and um you know and get a sense of where they were and, and uh, maybe even you know face some of the demons of the past too because this was a ferocious battle fought here yeah well, you wrote about that battle. Well, you have several times. One, uh, one of those times you, you dissected the, the storming of the beach there was the book The Dead and Those About to Die about D-Day and the military unit known as the Big Red One. What's the Big Red One? Yeah, that, that refers to the 1st Infantry Division, um, which has been in existence for just over 100 years. So it fought in World War One and established that uh, nickname for itself, the Big Red One, and they have a they have a red one on their patch, and uh, they, by World War II, they're kind of a go-to unit to, 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 you know, win battles for you when you really need that. And they had invaded North Africa, Sicily, and then they get the key assignment at Omaha Beach, and of course after that, fought all the way through to Germany and suffered. You know, you can imagine a lot of casualties. So they had this uh, this kind of unique persona and pride. They were, you know, a heavy, experienced combat unit. Uh, who could sometimes be a handful while off the line, um, <laughs> you know, disciplinary-wise. So they, they were not people to be messed with. But they were the exact kind of people you wanted for this tremendous challenge of taking this beach and also then subsequently fighting in Normandy where really, you know, D-Day happens June 6th, but the, the Battle of Normandy lasts another two months, and, and the fighting is just, just a meat grinder kind of ferocity. And so the Big Red One is, is you know, sort of – one of the key American units that helps uh, the Allies win. Yeah, I, I, I imagine you get this a lot, John, but I, I'm going to ask you about Saving Private Ryan. Um, oh, yeah. And a lot yeah. of us have seen that film and the, the riveting opening scene that depicts very vividly the, the attack that morning. Is that how it went? Uh, to some extent it is. Of course, you know, it's it's a film, so some things are not quite you know, exactly accurate. For instance, uh, the, the soldiers are very close together and they would have tried to spread out, uh, but you have to do that cinematically. You know, <laughs> you've got to have the people in the scene. They've got the, um, uh, the log obstacles that you see are pointing in the wrong direction. Uh, on D-Day, they were in the opposite direction. Um, so, you know, there are things like that, that, that historians like me, who, by the way, are no fun to watch these kind of movies with because we, <laughs> we pick at everything, you know, like but but aside from you know some some details that the expert notices, you think it, it portrayed the, the tenor of that of that assault? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and I, I just think it, it it portrayed the in particular the violence, and and I, I think they didn't shrink from that. I'm glad they didn't. Uh, I think that's the way uh, 
war films should be done if they're covering combat. And uh, and of course, you could also. I mean, we can we can look at incidents from from that film, and we can find corroborating circumstances that actually did happen that inspired what they showed in the film. And uh, so, yeah, I had. I, I think it's a, it's a really good representation, and I actually use it in, in my classes I have for going on 20 years now. Um, so I, I'm glad that film got made. The impression I get from, from Saving Private Ryan and, and, and some other films about World War II is that the, the assault on Normandy was really a matter of throwing numbers at the Germans, that the, the Allies were prepared to go in and take heavy casualties in service of eventually overwhelming the enemy. Uh, was it more complicated than that? It is more complicated, but I think there's a major element of truth in, in that. Of course, the Allies do have that advantage of numbers at the scene of the invasion. Um, what you don't see in, the, in, in that film and in the other sources is that, of course, the Germans nonetheless control much of the continent. So if they know the time and place of the invasion, uh, they can throw a lot of people at that problem. You know, So you know, the fact that the Allies are going to have more numbers may not may not actually be true if we're looking at the bigger picture. And, of course, if, we're, if they're just landing on a few beaches, their combat strength and numbers may be funneled and maybe fatally if the Germans can counterattack well enough. So uh, really, in some respects, beyond the, the valor of the average ground combat soldier, which I think really is what wins any war, and particularly this one, nonetheless, the, the Allies have control of the air and the sea. They have very strong air and sea power, and that's kind of the key to them getting back on the continent. And it's something the Germans can't quite match. Um, but at the same time, you know, that, that doesn't prevent it just being a bloodbath on the ground in Normandy and afterwards. Yeah. And you mentioned getting getting a beachhead uh, on the continent. What was the, the strategic importance of this battle at, at the moment that it happened? Yeah, th this is going to create what uh, the planners had called a second front. The Soviets and the Eastern Front have been doing the, the vast majority of the fighting and dying for the Allies um, now, the Allies had had a massive uh, aerial campaign to, to you know, try and bring Germany to its knees and cripple its air force. They had fought in the Mediterranean, most notably in Italy. Um, the invasion of Normandy really is going to be the beginning of the end for Hitler. I would think of it, I think of it always as a pivot point. Um, once the Germans lose in Normandy and, and sort of the, the success of the Normandy invasion is an indicator that that's possibly going to happen, um, once they lose in Normandy, they're probably going to lose the war. Uh, so, the, to, but to get ashore requires just a prodigious planning effort. And of course, as I mentioned, the air and the sea power, wing control of the air and sea, and and, uh, and all, it's a technological problem in the sense of uh, you know how are you going to communicate? How are you going to resupply? Where are you going to move people? For every soldier sure. you land on the continent, you got to supply them. You know, all these kind of factors come into play. John so McManus? Really quite a complicated thing. Yeah. John, John, we have to take a quick break right now. Um, so we're going to do that, but we will be back shortly to continue the conversation. This is St. This, yeah, this Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. My guest is Missouri S&T professor of history, John McManus. He's currently in Europe to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day. More precisely, he's actually in Normandy for the 75th anniversary of that turning point in the war. 
John, did did the invasion of Normandy go as planned? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> so many things went wrong. I mean, of course, overall it succeeds, so yes, great. But at the same time, there were so many things that went wrong. Um, you know, I'll just give you one example looking at Omaha Beach. Uh, the, the pre-invasion bombardment by both the Air Force and the Navy is next to useless, and mainly because um, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the bombers are being asked to bomb on a very tight window, about a thousand yard window, and they just don't have that kind of accuracy. They're bombing through heavy cloud cover, and of course they don't want to bomb their own fleet and their own people. So they, they wait several extra moments, uh, and most of their bombs fall inland and don't do any damage. The naval bombardment lasts 45 minutes, and the reason for that is so that you'll have the element of surprise against the Germans, which of course is crucial. Uh, it just wasn't enough time to do any damage. Um, then something that really uh, opened it, my eyes, John, in your book was the idea that uh, when those crafts landed just offshore, uh, they were expecting to find a beach that had already been prepared, right? Yeah, well, they, and that's what they've been told. Now, many of the veterans who had fought in previous battles and knew that things went wrong, they they had been skeptical and they they just kind of chuckled ruefully to themselves if they thought of it at all. Um, and said, "Yeah, well, well, we'll do what we always have to do, which is, which is, uh, you know, fight this battle on the ground and win it that way." And yeah, so and of course, the the whole plan was predicated on putting all sorts of people and tanks and specialists together at the same time to present the Germans with overwhelming targets. And in fact, what happens is it gets confused and people get behind. They land late. They land in the wrong spot and. So they land piecemeal, and the Germans can focus on one group at a time and, and exact tremendous damage among them. So, yeah, the plan really unraveled pretty quickly there. And the Airborne is another example. Um, the paratroopers just scattered all over the place and then have to kind of improvise. So, yeah, the Normandy invasion is anything but a but a fine-tuned operation. Is <laughs> as great as the planning was. It's you know it's an improvisation kind of thing. And in fairness, it's of course what the largest amphibious assault in human history. Is that that the case? It probably is. Now, you know, the invasion of Okinawa was a pretty massive effort, too, and it's, you know, later in the war. Um, so, in, and of course, the, another invasion of the Philippines before that um, was pretty huge as well. So you'll sometimes hear quibbles here and there about the, the size of it. But there's no, there's no doubt that you could make an argument Normandy is the most important invasion ever. And, yeah, I mean, you're landing 156,000 soldiers that's that's a huge operation, of course. And some of the details that, that you uncover are so vivid. Just the idea that uh, the the wind was strong that morning, and folks weren't necessarily planned for that, and that uh, people were packed down with with more equipment than they necessarily needed. That was making it hard to swim. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, they're weighted down with way too much stuff. Uh, they're seasick. They're woozy. They're frightened. You know, <laughs> I mean, you could just imagine you're, you're dumped into the water on the sand. And you're disoriented, and you're you're hauling around seventy to eighty pounds of stuff at least. It's just it's just way too much, and it makes you a better target. Then, um, you know, it's just it's it's a kind of an American tendency to do this to to weigh down our combat soldiers with way too much stuff. And uh, you know, the the invasion of Normandy is really a prime example of that the airborne troopers, in many cases, are hauling so much that they have to be helped aboard the planes before they leave England. Um, so, you know, you can imagine jumping into the night <laughs> with this stuff on you and how heavy that's going to be when you land. Uh, and again, how disorienting, how difficult that would be. And you write that the failure to dislodge the German forces from the beach with that air power ahead of time 
Uh, you see a symptomatic of some recurring mistakes that the U.S. military had been making at that point in its history? Yeah, I think that there was an American tendency to, to over-rely on air power, on certainly on technological power, but on air power and to ask too much from what was a great thing. That, you know, of course, it was great to have this remarkable um, aerial armada. You know, there's, there's about you know, 11,000-plus planes available, and it's great to have that, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be a kind of magical elixir. And I, I just feel like, you know, you were asking the heavy bombers to do something in Omaha Beach they weren't really capable of, whereas at the American beach at Utah, um, they had medium bombers that flew lower and were a little more accurate and, and did more damage. So that was a bit more successful. Um, but I, yeah, I think that there was a tendency to have a bit too much confidence in what are otherwise great assets, air power, technological power, the intel that they gathered, you know, all this kind of stuff. In the end, it really came down to the, you know, the fighting ground soldier to make this thing work. Mm. John, se- 75 years later, what do, what do people misunderstand about D-Day these days? Well, I, I think um, there, there's a tendency to feel that, uh, you know, the, the war ended with D-Day. And, and it really didn't. It was, you know, from an American perspective and from a kind of British and Canadian and French perspective, the worst of the fighting was just beginning. And, uh, in fact, there was almost a year of terrible fighting ahead in order to liberate Western Europe and defeat Nazi Germany. So I, I almost liken D-Day the opening day in baseball. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great to win, but you got the whole season ahead. So D-Day just sort of presents the opportunities now the Allies had to defeat the German army in the field. And, for, of course, for the Soviets to do the same on the Eastern Front. Um, so in that respect, I suppose it's the beginning and the end. But, boy, it's a, it's a long way between beginning and end there. What was the reaction of the American public at the time? It was, you know, D-Day was an enormously heavily anticipated event. Um, there were people who had, in fact, this is very common, you know, how like nowadays when we have March Madness, you have your pool and you, you know, you, you speculate on who's going to win and all that. Well, people had, had those kind of betting pools in relation to when the invasion would happen. They wow. would guess the time and, and, uh, and even the place in some cases. And, uh, so, I mean, the, the entire Western world, but particularly the USA was waiting with bated breath. And so when it happened, there was a lot of confusion because there had been a false report a few days before um, that the invasion had started. And so when you get the uh, fragmentary reports on, uh, on you know, on, on the U.S. on the Atlantic on June 6th, they were a little skeptical at first, if you're the average citizen. But once they figured out that this was real, it was the kind of thing where you remembered where you were and what you were doing. You will remember that for the rest of your life, just like you would with Pearl Harbor or the Kennedy assassination or 9-11, you know, that kind of uh, world-altering event. Uh, President Roosevelt led the country in, in prayer. Uh, that's exceptionally rare for, for an American president to do. And schools closed, um, businesses closed, people went to church, churches were mobbed with people. Um, so it was it was something that for the people who experienced it, they, they really never forgot. Mm. And of course, it's it's it has a huge role in our collective cultural memory today. Um, but was this a, the sort of battle that military historians still sift through and, and pick apart and analyze after the fact? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> military historians are still kicking this one around on so many different levels. In fact, next month, um, I'm going to be going to, to England, to, to uh, University of Portsmouth, and we're going to have a Normandy 75 conference, which encompasses, of course, D-Day, but beyond that, the whole battle of Normandy. And I can tell you from a sort of scholarly point of view, 
um, it's still a very rich field in which, believe it or not, there's still all kinds of new information that comes out or at least new interpretations. And um, I, I'm pretty confident that uh, I think the historians are going to be mulling this one over for a long time to come because the importance is, is certainly just indisputable. Um, and there's a, uh, I think there's a level of historical fascination with it that just has never quite gone away. What other battles might you compare it to, whether talking about the, the tactics or just the, uh, the importance, the relative importance? Well, in terms of the tactics, you know, we could compare it with, um, you know, many uh, amphibious invasions that, that the uh, Americans launched in the course of the war. Um, and, of course, the German reaction, too, is interesting compared with other amphibious invasions. What I mean by that, uh, the famous Field Marshal Rommel feels that the invasion has to be defeated at the beginning, so he invests a lot of resources to do that, and it, it's quite a failure. Whereas the Japanese at that same moment were starting to reorient to what's called an inland defense. They thought, well, the Americans are going to get ashore as long as they have a better, you know, better control of the air and the sea against us. So why don't we just fortify inland and bleed them? And you see that at places like Iwo Jima, Okinawa, the Philippines, so on and so forth. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting comparisons in that respect. As far as importance of a battle, um, D-Day in the Battle of Normandy, I, I know of no more important battle in World War II. Um, you know, there, there's just, to me, there's just no question about that. Hmm. John, how did, why military history for you? How, how did you get into this? Well, I think personally, there, there's nothing more that any of us could ever be asked to do than to put our li lives on the line. Um, and also, I, you know, when I look at human history, uh, there's an undeniable pattern uh, that war seems to happen all the time and it seems to drive so much of human history and i think that's terribly tragic and unfortunate and just as i think it's important for physicians to study disease i think it's important for historians to study warfare uh, in the hopes of perhaps learning some lessons and i also think it ought to be remembered uh, and understood uh, of those who actually fight wars what that really means um, why they do it, that's part of what animates my whole career is, is getting to that idea of combat motivation. Not what motivates you to sign up, but what motivates you to actually fight. It's two very different things. Um, so, I, I mean, I just feel as though those are important questions in the abstract, but also uh, as an American military historian, I'm very interested in Americans and what makes them tick. And I think that uh, by studying the military side and Americans in military conflict, I think we find out a lot about ourselves. And I imagine you've, you've talked to a lot of veterans of World War II. Oh, absolutely. I've been at this for about 20-some-odd uh, years, interviewing veterans. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have very many left from World War II anymore, um, which is a very sad thing. Uh, but, but on the fortunate side, uh, not just me, but many, many other historians have done a heck of a lot of work to, to do, discuss um, these things with veterans and preserve their stories, uh, you know, foster oral histories, memoirs, diaries, letters, you know, things like that, primary sources that'll be with us forever. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I've gotten, you know, quite a feel for um, what that generation experienced just from, from knowing so many of these folks. Yeah. And, um, and I, I just think that's important to remember. Yeah, well, I'm sure it'll be a very moving experience today for the for that anniversary, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. You're on the spot um, in Normandy, France. Uh, that's our time right now, John. But but thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my guest here has been Missouri S&T Professor of History, John McManus. He is currently overseas to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.